We're going to read about 18 verses together, and this is from Philippians 2, and this is a passage that I've been camped out in for the last two weeks, and God has just been showing me so much, and so I want to share that with you all today. So we're going to start reading here in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance of a man as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, because Paul was writing this from prison, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Today we're going to talk about imitating Christ's humility. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much, Lord, that you sent your Holy Spirit. Lord, you didn't leave us here to try and figure things out on our own. Lord, but you gave us your word, you gave us your truth, and you gave us the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would come now and that you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide. Lord, I pray that as I share today from the things that you've revealed to me from this scripture, Lord, I pray that there would be no one in here that feels like I'm speaking from a place of already being there. Lord, we're all on this journey together, and Lord, we need you. God, we can't do what you've called us to do without your abiding presence. And I thank you that you promised to never leave us and to, to never forsake us. And God, I thank you that you're going to speak to us, Lord. We just open up our hearts to you and ask you to come and do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. So back in 2020, we were still living in Melbourne, Victoria, and we were under house arrest, politely known as COVID lockdown. And during that time, I participated in an online Bible study 
for about eight weeks called Becoming Mrs. Better Half. I'm always looking for ways to grow as a wife because my, outside of my relationship with Christ, my relationship with Jason is the most important thing and it's the thing that I want to invest the most in and I make no apology for that. This is also the avenue that God has so graciously used the most to make me more like him. So this entire eight weeks was based on this passage of scripture in Philippians 2 that we just read and honestly it changed my life. The basic premise was this, as long as I focus on my husband and all the ways that he needs to change, then I'm only ever going to get frustrated because the only person I can truly change is myself. So when I change me, I change us. Now, that change in perspective would require some courage, right? Because we have to face the reality of who we are and the areas that we need to grow in. But I love what verse 13 says here, that it's never without hope because it's God who's working in us to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. So I think it's important to remember that if you feel like God is speaking to you and that voice is very condemning, then that's not the Lord speaking to you. Because whenever God speaks to you, it's always affirming, it's always encouraging. And while it might be painful because he's identifying an area you need to change in, it is not condemning. And so if you hear that voice, you need to reject that because that is the enemy speaking. We can humbly and courageously acknowledge our sinful habits and our need for change because we know that our sanctification is ultimately up to God. It's not up to us. So I thought for most of my early life up to probably up to my 20s that I was actually quite an unselfish person. I was the friend that deferred to everyone else's preferences, mainly for the sake of keeping the peace and also because I wanted them to like me. But I truly believed I didn't have an issue with selfishness. And then I got married. And then I went on to have six children. So you think I would be an expert now in unselfishness. <laughs> I'm still working on that. The goal for married couples is not a happy marriage. The goal is to become more Christ-like. And then when that's in motion, one of the side benefits of that is happiness. But not all the time. So spoiler alert for all of the singles in here, you're not always going to feel happy. Marriage is for holiness and happiness, holiness first. Now I'm very aware that there are just as many, if not more single people in the room today than for those who are married. So I just want to assure you that this is not a message for married people. There are valuable things I believe that we can all learn today from this passage of scripture, and it's going to help us in our pursuit of Christ and becoming more like him. So I just want to give you a bit of context for this passage that we just read. Paul is writing from prison to the church in Philippi. And Philippi was actually a Roman colony often referred to as small Rome. So the people there took pride in their Roman citizenship. And I think it's important to note this because this is why Paul was exhorting them to humility because it was such a stark contrast to their Roman values. Roman society was very hierarchical with a strong emphasis on honor, status, and the pursuit of glory. So Paul in this chapter two spoke directly into this when he encouraged Christians to imitate Christ's humility. This would have been incredibly countercultural 
and even radical for the Romans to hear this. And just like the Roman culture, we're dealing with this same thing in our culture today. Any society that doesn't honor God or even acknowledge his existence drifts further and further into pride. We've become so proud as a nation that we've taken away from God the right to even determine the identity of our gender. It's ludicrous. Andrew Murray, he was a Dutch reformed Scotsman and he was a missionary to South Africa. And he's written this brilliant little book on humility, that's the name of it. And he says this, we must seek a humility which will rest in nothing less than the end and death of self, which gives up all the honor of men as Jesus did to see the honor that comes from God alone, which absolutely makes and counts itself nothing so that God may be all that the Lord alone may be exalted. About to trip over the rug here, sorry. <laughs> Until we seek humility in Christ, our chief joy and welcome it at any price, there is very little hope of a religion that will conquer the world. So when we say that the ultimate goal of life is to become more like Jesus in our character, then what we're actually saying is that our ultimate goal in life is to grow in humility. So how do we do that? Well, there are three things that Paul clearly reveals to us in this passage about humility. The first thing is that our character is most clearly revealed in our relationships with other people. Verse five of the passage we just read says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he's challenging the church to be Christ-like in the way that they relate to one another. Why is that? It's because it's our relationship with the people closest to us where we can't hide who we really are. This is most true in marriage, but it's also true in families. It's true with housemates. It's true with close friends that we're willing to be vulnerable with. There's a big difference between character and reputation. Reputation is who other people think we are. Character is who we really are when no one's looking. And what is the one virtue above all others that Paul wants the church to display? He says we're to humble ourselves in the way that Jesus humbled himself. Now, how did he do that? Well, I can see two ways in this passage that Jesus humbled himself. Firstly, he willingly left his place in heaven as the eternal son of God, and he became a human man, beginning in the lowliest form as a helpless and dependent baby born in a barn. Verse seven says he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The incarnation was the greatest act of humility ever displayed up to that point. The only act of humility to ever top that was the second way that Jesus humbled himself, which we see in verse eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The perfect and sinless son of God obeyed the father and died a criminal's death at the hands of an unjust mob of prideful and self-righteous sinners. In humility, he resisted the urge to call upon 10,000 angels that would have obeyed his voice in an instant and destroyed his accusers. But motivated by love and from a heart of humility, this God-man Jesus gave his life so that all of sinful humanity might have the opportunity to become sons of God. 
Paul says that that's what we're to model our lives and our character after. We are never to use the church or to use one another as a platform for our own selfish gain. We are to be like Jesus who made himself nothing. Okay, here we go. Here's my first story. And a lot of them do include Jason. Sorry, that's just my life. So we have a rule in our house. We've always had this rule that there are no balls allowed inside the house. Okay, this, this, is, this has always applied, but when our kids were little, it's like you, if you want to play with balls, you go outside, no bouncing balls in the house for very obvious reasons. So it was this one particular weekend, Jason was away for work in Sydney and I wasn't feeling very well. It was a Saturday morning, so I thought I need to get up and wash my hair. Um, and I probably just need to take it easy. So anyway, I'm in the shower and I hear this thudding coming from upstairs. And I know straight away, somebody has a ball in the house. This child shall remain nameless. Um, so I'm, I get out of the shower and I'm like, guys, who is bouncing the ball upstairs? There are no balls allowed in the house. Silence goes away. Anyway, this happens two or three more times. So I'm drying my hair with a hairdryer. I'm trying to stay calm. I'm like, they know the rules. And the banging starts again. And the bedroom is like directly above my bathroom. So I turn the hairdryer off, come out my room. Incidentally, our bedroom is right next to the front door in our house in Melbourne. And then there's stairs going upstairs. So I stand at the bottom of the stairs and I'm like, how many times do I have to tell? I was yelling. I won't yell in the microphone, but how many times do I have to tell you no bouncing balls in the house? I mean, I was mad because this was like the fourth time. There's like complete silence. And then I hear this sweet little voice from outside the front door. This is just Faye from across the street. I just wanted to bring you some flowers. And I'm like, oh no. So I open the door really sheepishly. There is my beautiful neighbor Faye from across the street. And earlier in the week, her husband had fallen in the driveway and split his head open. And so I waited with her, I called the ambulance. And so she just wanted to bring these flowers over to say, thank you so much for being there for me. So I tried to, um, I don't know, I fumbled around saying, I'm not feeling very well, Jason's away, basically making excuses for why I was yelling at my kids. And she didn't seem to be too phased. And then I closed the door and burst into tears because <laughs> I was so embarrassed that I had been, I should have been embarrassed that I was yelling at my children with no self-control, but I was more embarrassed that I had been doing it and the neighbor had heard me. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the primary ways that we demonstrate humility in our relationships is our willingness to acknowledge our sin and ask for forgiveness. And that doesn't mean just saying sorry. And so I went to said child, I think I actually went to all my children and apologized and said, mommy is sorry. She lost control. She didn't have any self-control and she yelled, I'm really sorry for that. Will you please forgive me? Because if we only say I'm sorry, then we are still in control. True humility looks like not just saying I'm sorry, but will you please forgive me? And that's quite risky because we are giving control to the person that we've hurt to decide whether they're going to extend forgiveness or not. And it's risky because they might say no. 
Honestly, I love fresh flowers, like I love them, but I could not wait for those flowers to die because every time I looked at them, it was a reminder of how much I messed up. Life has a way of revealing our character. And sometimes we need to be a little bit exposed for God to get our attention and say, hey, there's a root of pride here that caused you to respond in the way you did. If you want to know if you're really humble, then ask someone you live with. <laughs> Not right now. Do it after church. <laughs> the next thing we see here from Paul is that to grow in humility, we must invite the Holy Spirit to rid us of selfish ambition and vain conceit. In verse 3 and 4 here, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So Paul wants the church here to be mindful of their motive. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Motive is all about why we do what we do. We might manifest selfish ambition in our friendships or in a work context or really in any part of our life. What does Paul mean when he refers to selfish, not shellfish, selfish <laughs> ambition and vain conceit? Why does he call these two things out specifically? Well, I believe it's because these are two enemies of humility that tend to manifest in every human heart. And these are the two primary things that are at the center of our sanctification and which the gospel will seek to destroy in our own hearts. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of Greek here. I didn't know this ahead of time, I researched this, but the Greek word for selfish ambition is erotheia. I even did like the, put the word in and did like the Google, what does it sound like? And then I wrote it down in my notes, the way you say it, not what it looks like, which I was gonna have you actually put it up there, but that's all good. So erotheia is a lust for fame and recognition. In a word, it's the desire to be number one, no matter the cost. Selfish ambition can exist in all walks of life, including ministry. This was the root sin in the heart of the Pharisees. They preached passionately about holiness, but all they really cared about was their own fame and honor. They didn't actually love God or the people they ministered to, they only loved themselves. You probably have read in Matthew, Jesus actually called them whitewashed tombs, which means they look really beautiful and clean on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of death and decay. It's pretty strong. What is vain conceit? Well, I have another Greek word for you. That is kenodoxia. It's a combination of two Greek words that mean empty and glory or praise. So vain conceit is empty praise. Vain conceit is synonymous with thinking that we are better, stronger, and more capable than we really are. It's extreme pride. So our beautiful daughter, Karis, is, she's like, oh no, I'm the subject of this one. You're not actually, but she turns 13 next week. And so it is the end of an era in the Staggers house, because this is our sixth baby, and we will now have a house full of teenagers. Well, actually, no. One of our children is an adult now. But I do just want to say this, that if your parents, especially of young children, there will always be people that will tell you things like, oh, the, you know, the terrible twos, like it's so hard. And then even people have said to me, oh my gosh, 
give me like little kids any day because when they're teenagers and they can talk back, you know, it's even worse. But I just want to say how proud I am of my kids. Like, and, and even all these guys sitting here in these two rows, like, yeah, I'm just proud of you. And, and there is a grace in every season of parenting. And so don't allow people to speak negative things over you as parents and say, oh, this is going to be so difficult. No, there'll be a grace from God to parent them and do what you need to do for them. So every year until my kid's 13th birthday, I make a cake for them. I still make cakes after they turn 13, but up until 13, I had to cut it off when they became a teenager because I had so many kids. Um, they get to choose what cake they would like for their birthday. And so I've got all of the Women's Weekly cake books. And if there's a cake that they would like that isn't in the book, then they tell me and I will research it and make that cake for them. So I figured out in my preparation for this message that I, this will be roughly next week, my 75th birthday cake that I have made over the last 20 years. Yes, thank you. So this, like I love, I love doing it. It's, I say it's like a creative outlet for me, but there's also a lot of stress because I'm a recovering perfectionist. So notice when I post my photos of cakes on social media, there's never like, it's never like a 360. It's always just the front of the cake because sometimes with the rollout icing, the back doesn't always look as pretty. Anyway, I'm gonna take you back to the year 2014 and our twin boys, Alex and Ben, Ben's not here for me to embarrass because he's in kids, serving in kids today, but they were turning five years old and Alex at the time was really into tigers. So the Women's Weekly had this awesome cake that was like focused on tigers. So I was able to make that for him. Now Ben's request was a little more difficult. Now Jason used to try and convince me, be like, babe, they're twins, like just do the combo cake thing. And I would get so mad, I'd say, no, they're... So my best friends growing up were twins and they hated being called twins because they felt like that was their identity rather than individuals. So I've never referred to my boys, I'll call them my boys and not twins because I didn't want that to be their identity. Anyway, there have been some years where they've chosen the same thing and that's worked out really well for me. But this particular year, Ben had his heart set on one particular cake that I was never gonna find in a cake book. So let me explain, my parents live in the UK and they'd come over for a visit a few months before. And my dad, as probably most dads and granddads, loved to wrestle and tickle the boys and wind them up. So I don't quite know how this happened, but the TV must have been on which we don't even watch TV. We watch like Netflix and think like we watch shows, but not the regular TV, but the regular TV was on. My dad was probably watching the news and, and he started wrestling with Ben. And then this commercial for Dolmio sauce came on the TV. So then Dolmio became synonymous with granddad giving tickles. So then my my dad would be yelling Dolmio while he was tickling them almost to the point of them vomiting. So when I asked Ben, oh, what do you want this year for a birthday cake? He's like, I want a Dolmio cake. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, awesome, challenge accepted. So I was like, okay, what am I gonna do here? So anyway, I actually went and watched the commercial and there's actually this really cute Italian family, you know, there's Papa Dolmio and 
So I was, I had this brainwave and I was like, I'm going to email Dormio, the company. I'm going to tell them the story. And maybe they've got like some figurines of like the family and I can just put those on top of the cake and they'll think it's great. So I email them and this really kind lady wrote back to me and she loved hearing the story and she said, look, I'm really sorry we don't, don't have anything that would work for a cake. But she said, I would love to send Ben a Papa Tomio puppet and also a baseball hat, free advertising, hey? So I was like, okay, back to the drawing board. So then I remembered that a lot of cake shops will make edible images. So I was like, okay, that's what I can do. I can just make a round cake, won't be too difficult, and I'll just get an edible image to put on it. So I have a picture to show you of the final cake here. Look how cute! <laughs> oh man, he was so happy. He was so happy, and that's all I cared about. I was like, he was like, yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> this is going to be used as future ammunition later on. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> anyway, this is not even the main point of the story, but I had to give you the back part of the story. So we had a birthday party for them. They all had a great time, and because I was exhausted, when they turned five, we, I think I had six kids under eight at that point. So anyway, we had the birthday party. I was exhausted because it was always the night before the birthday when I was up until all hours and Jason too to cheer me on <laughs> making these cakes and so I remember when all the kids had gone to bed I remember sitting on the couch next to Jason and just feeling exhausted and I had posted these really cute photos on social media so all these comments were coming in and so I just sat on the couch exhausted and I'm scrolling through the comments and um, you know people were so encouraging that's amazing and you're an amazing mom and so all of a sudden I had this moment and I said to Jason, like, this is just too much pressure. Like, I feel like I shouldn't have posted these photos and now everybody's telling me how amazing I am, but I don't feel like I'm amazing or a very great mom because I've already been impatient tonight and I'm, I, because I'm tired. And Jason, who often will sound like the Lord's voice in my life, looked at me after I'd been ranting for a little bit and he's like, babe, you are a great mom, but only by the grace of God. And without that, you'd be screwed. <laughs> As only Jason could say. So in this moment, I got so offended and angry. I was like, because I realized I wanted to take the credit. I wanted him to be like, you are a great mom and you do all these things for our kids and you're amazing. And he didn't say that but i forgot in that moment that i am a great mom but it's only because of the grace of god that enables me to be all that i am it's our selfish ambition and our vain conceit that wants us to take credit for our own achievements pride makes us feel lesser or insecure and causes us to not want to attribute our success to anyone else even to god and I, I believe we all have to war against these temptations. Pride is what causes me to put my needs and my feelings above the needs of others. And it will blind me to current reality and it will convince me that I'm right and that my needs are more important than others. And moving on so we can take the photo off the screen. The final way we grow in humility is in 
our attitude. Gratitude toward God is our purest motivation and the spring from which humility flows. Paul shows us that one of the key manifestations of pride is grumbling and complaining. Ouch. We grumble and complain when we think we deserve better than the life that we're experiencing. It's actually rooted in a heart of entitlement, which is rooted in self-righteousness. But I'm a good person and I deserve better than this. God, you owe me. Look at all the things that I've done for you lately. When we grumble and complain, we show that the gospel still needs to pierce our hearts on a deeper level. How does that happen? Well, the good news begins first with the bad news, that we were born into sin and we deserve absolutely nothing good from God. In fact, what we deserved was judgment. And that includes all of us, whether it's overt, obvious sin or often the hidden sin of self-righteous church attendance. Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. True humility before God can only flow out of a heart that has been changed by Jesus. The only heart that can be changed by Jesus is one that comes to him realizing that they deserve nothing. This revelation is the starting point of gratitude before God. If God did nothing else for us ever again, he has purchased for us eternal life in heaven. We get to spend eternity with God because of Jesus. Gratitude is such a powerful gift. And when we practice gratitude, it helps us to focus on the things that matter most and not on what we don't have. I have another story for you. <laughs> so after Jason and I were newly married, I was having an insecure day. Those happened a lot when we were first married, still do, but not as many as I'm being formed into Christ's image. But we were living in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was a Sunday and we'd already been to church that morning. And then we'd come home and had a glorious afternoon nap, which I can't wait to get back to when we move to a morning service. <laughs> Just another reason why we need to move to a morning service. Sunday afternoon naps are the best. Anyway, I digress. Better check my notes here because I was thinking about how amazing naps are and now I've forgotten. Yes, okay. So we were getting ready to go to a Sunday night service, which was on the university campus. So once a month there was a... Um, a church service that happened on campus and because Jason was doing a lot of Bible studies on campus and reaching out to students he wanted to go to this service so I already didn't really want to go because I never went to university by choice and I just found when I was on the campus I just felt a bit more insecure and like I found myself comparing myself so I didn't really want to go so I was sitting on the bed and I was having a little whinge about I'm really tired even though I just took a nap and I don't really want to go and anyway, I don't have anything to wear. So Jason sat and so patient, he's very patient, listened to me whinge for a little bit about how I don't have anything to wear. And he kept trying to make suggestions like, oh, you look really good in this, why don't you wear this? No, I don't want to wear that. So anyway, after I kept digging a bigger and bigger hole, all of a sudden, I think the Holy Spirit came on him, he stands up and he's like, you are gonna get up and you were gonna go to your closet and you were gonna look at all the clothes that you have and you are gonna begin to thank God for all that he's provided for you. You're gonna repent of being ungrateful and you're gonna get dressed and we're gonna go to church. And then he walks out and shuts the door. I was like, 
well, maybe I'm not going to go to church. Maybe I'll just stay home and, well, there's no Netflix back then. Wow, that makes me feel old. Anyway, I was angry. And then I was like, well, maybe I should just try. Maybe I should just try it. Maybe I should just try and do what he told me to do and be a submissive wife. So I went to my closet and I started talking to the Lord, telling him, oh God, you know how I feel. And can't help it sometimes when I'm feeling hormonal. You know that. You created me, you know, all this. And then I just started to thank him. God, thank you that I have all these tops to choose from. Like I could pick any, like you've given me. And something miraculous started to happen. I was like, oh, wow, I actually do have a lot of clothes. And oh, look at all these options that I could wear. So anyway, long story short, we ended up going to this church service and it was amazing. And I had a really powerful encounter with God. And I could have missed that if I had stayed in my hormonal state and been ungrateful for all that God had provided. Now, I just want to say if you're a husband and you are in the room right now, I need to warn you that it might not always work out well for you. So proceed with caution if you want to model after Jason. <laughs> The enemy will always have us focus on what we don't have or what we do have isn't enough, which will then lead to selfish ambition and vain conceit in our attempt to obtain on our own what we think we deserve. One of the primary ways we imitate Christ's humility is through having an attitude of gratitude. So just in conclusion, I want to give you a few questions to ponder, and I'd love it if the worship team could come back up and join me. What character traits are most visible in your relationships with the people that know you the best? Where might selfish ambition and vain conceit be at work in your life? How is your attitude of gratitude before God? Psalm 51:17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We now have to learn to live out Philippians 2 in our everyday lives. Remember, Jesus had a right to claim his own life, but he didn't. He chose to sacrifice it. Give undeserved grace. I'd love to give you a challenge for this week, and that's to give undeserved grace in a situation that you're facing, whether it's at home, at work, at college, at school, and watch what happens. And I would love, if you're bold enough, to post these stories in our Telegram group. Like, I, I would love to hear of how you've given undeserved grace in a situation that you were facing, and then how God uses that to work humility in your life. I think it would be so encouraging. I'd love us to just stand, and we're just gonna worship for a few minutes, and just, I'm sure there's something that stood out to you that the Holy Spirit's highlighted, and I just want to encourage you as we worship to ask God for help. Like he knows that we're on a journey. We're on a journey of becoming more Christ-like. And you know, there's a passage in James that says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I know that there is grace available for you today in, in the thing that he's highlighting in your life. So as we worship, just, just tell him, say, God, here I am. He, he wants us to come just as we are. And so just tell him, God, here I am, and I need your help in this area. And I believe that there's going to be a deposit 
of grace into your life in this moment.